Are you in need of a translator or a guide or something of a more personal matter? Well, if you thought a movie from the 80s about male sex work would be easy, I think you've got the wrong movie. So today, we're taking the time to care for this film as we go full frontal and ask the question, American Gigolo, what's it about? I'm Ricardo Blade Diaz. And I'm Seth Crow, And this is the What's It About Film Podcast, a show where two aspiring creatives aim to glean the meaning of it all through the media we consume, pulling a mirror to ourselves, and seeing how it reflects in our own lives. Seth, how are you doing today? I'm good, man. I'm good. You know? You're doing good? Uh, yeah. I, uh, uh, last night I went and checked out a... Uh, I, I, I was in Nashvilleian the past two days. I went and saw uh, a couple concerts, which was cool. Uh, Are they and, called Nashvillians? I thought they were called Na- Nash Nash Nashvites. No, definitely Nashvillian. De- definitely Nashvillian. It sounds it sounds uh, too long. We call them Nashies. No, no, no Na- Nashvillian. It's uh, French, I think. Actually, <laughs> it's <'cause>, French. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, continue. You went to some concerts. <laughs> yeah, I went to some concerts. Um, and last night was kind of business. And pleasure. I, I'm trying to put together this variety show, mm-hmm. and uh, so I checked out a, a space that we might be using for it. Um, and yeah, I'm supposed to get in contact with the owner today and and have some conversations. Who knows? Uh, I'm starting to get the ball rolling on this a little bit. Um, Very which, cool. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Talent Exhibition Nashville. T-X-N. T-E-N. T-X-N. <laughs> it's called Texan. <laughs> <laughs> You're a troll. I am a troll. You're I'm in a trolling troll mood today. I'm in a trolling mood. It's okay. But uh, I, I had this like, so... I had like an expounding on this idea the other night while mm-hmm. actually I was watching this movie and, uh, and I kind of got obsessed with it. And so I, I want to do, I want to try to check this space out that I checked out last night, but I want to like maybe not use the space. I don't know. I haven't decided. It's going to be, be a lot of factors. You pay for the space, but then you don't use it. Well, Ooh. well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay for the space, but I'm not going to use it. But Basically, the I, I was like, "What if this talent exhibition is like an actual exhibition?" Oh, and like out I mean, in the streets. So, well, like say instead of renting like a theater space, you rent like a warehouse, mm-hmm. right? And so you have a big warehouse, and then you make the the stage like a, a circle, so the mm-hmm. audience is in It'd the middle. In the round, yeah. Oh, but but inverted round, right? Oh. So like a surround. Yeah, a surround. And so basically this way you don't have to like, you know how with musicians, they all have to get up there and tune their music and like mm-hmm. make sure that they get the right guitar. So you do that all you're, that you're beforehand. You're that in a very kind of insulting way, but it's kind of like what musicians have to do to make sure the music sounds good. You're saying it like, oh, fucking musicians got to like tune their instruments. It's such bullshit. <laughs> it really is bullshit when you're trying to put a show together and make it streamlined. So that's, I, mean, I guess that's fair, but like it's not the musician. You, you know, like you and I, you and I have put on a lot of shows like together, yeah. and half the nightmare is just like getting everything to flow. 
Yeah. Speaking so of I was which, like, sp- sorry to, to go off on a tangent here. Speaking of which, did you see Harrison's little like uh, post? No. Uh, which about one? Uh, about uh, rough cut uh, uh, all in all in blind. His little Facebook post. Maybe what what did it say? Well, like he like posted like a memory of like uh, a closing night of that of that run, um, which I thought was a really great run. But uh, but he was like, but in his like uh, post, he was like, it wasn't a great show. Great hats. We should have done more hats. Less show. And I was like, I thought it was a pretty good show. I thought I thought I I thought we not every time, but like that was that was my post. I posted classic. Well, Right, no, but then he he responded. He, he commented it. with he the shared hats. It. Yeah. yeah, and I was like, I don't necessarily agree. I don't think it was a bad show. I think for us there was a lack of commitment to the bits. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes I, I think I think the concept was great, and I mean, essentially, I'm trying to do the same thing now. Mm-hmm. Like that's still what I'm trying to do. I'm that's just why trying I brought to make it, it up. Yeah, uh, more marketable. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so, um, and everything, you know, well, it, depends like, on, like, it depends on, I think that was, that was probably the, when we had the weekly run for a couple of months. Right. But we never had more than a day to no, like, Oh, tech wise. No, we had, yeah, a, we had a couple wise. of hours tech wise to like each, each week we were putting up a new, a brand new show with all brand new uh, skits and, and things like that and bits um, completely original every week. And so we would only get like a couple of hours in the space to do tech. So yeah, like there were like tech, tech wise, it, it was rough and we didn't have a lot of space and we didn't have like, we didn't have really good lighting. So like, you know, so it, was, it was tough. My solution to this problem is you rent out a warehouse for like three days. You go in you set up everything beforehand. You get it all ready. And so that way, when like the audience walks in, they can see everything laid out just like they would in like a, ta- like a, a science ex- exhibition. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like they could walk through it. And then you get vendors and artists to be on the outside perimeter of the warehouse. So mm-hmm. that way, like, so there's like a, a two tier, like, two layers right you have the mm-hmm. outside which is like art and food and then the inside is where the show happens and so like i i think you and you could just sell tickets and then they could you know mm-hmm. buy and, then, the- and throughout the show would like there be like basically like presentations or like uh or like demonstrations where like oh like this area would like start they're playing their music and then people will well the, it would just be it would just area. be yeah so, so the show is in the middle. So mm-hmm. like the audience goes to the middle, the show happens around them. So all they have to do is turn around. Right. So like, uh, and so like, and then the, the style is like an SNL two hour style show. So like you're, you're you'll have like projector screens. Mm-hmm. And so like maybe two projector screens and then the show would start probably with music or like a host and then music and then. And then it would shift. There'd probably like one state, one main stage for like comedians mm. and then digital shorts in between that play on the, the screens. Mm-hmm. And then it would shift to another band that has been set up in another. So it was like, very all you have to do is like, turn, very interesting, turn little, your head. very interesting. That'd be a, quite an experience. 
I'm going to need it. a sound guy. I'm going to need a sound guy, Rick. Okay, I'll call I'll call some people. <laughs> I can't wait. I was gonna, guys, you got to hear about this new thing that they're trying to do in, in Nashville. It's called Texan. It's going to be great. <laughs> wait, it's <laughs> Fuck you. Wait, it's in Tennessee. It's not Texan. Texan. I'm just kidding, but no, dude. I'm glad you're 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 uh, you're finding your your artistic uh, pursuits exciting again. You know, and that's one of yeah. the hard things. I listened to a podcast this week that was talking about inspiration versus motivation, and how writing in general, like writing in general, but I think a lot of art uh, this can go this can apply to. Um, people confuse inspiration and motivation, where like. They think they need to be inspired to write. They need to be inspired to their, their art, and and it, it overly romanticizes what like art is sometimes. Like if you're yeah. an artist as your like job as like your primary form of like income, like it is like there needs to be a, sometimes a de-romanticizing of writing or of creating because sometimes it is mechanical. You have to be motivated outside of insp- outside of just being inspired to do something. You you have to go through the mechanical process of like just doing the thing sometimes, and that's like the and most actually honestly most of the time it's like that you know. It's I know it's it's sad, but it's true. Like if you want to get paid to like be a writer, if you want to get paid to be like a painter, an artist, you have to put out work. You know, you have to like. I don't think that's a. I don't. I think that is a. uh, I disagree. I think that's true in our in the in the economic system that we have created, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't agree entirely with what you're saying because I think if you make something art, so an art, a piece of art, good enough, you, it'll probably transcend that that system. And mm-hmm. uh, well, that's the thing, though is 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 if you if you go through the because if you're just gonna sit and wait until you're inspired, the only problem is inspiration is a not consistent and B is fleeting, right? How much are you going to get done in that time that you're inspired? Sometimes a lot, sometimes not so much, but by it's like, it's like muscle memory. You know, when you go through and you're doing the process of something and you're constantly thinking about it, inspiration comes more frequently, right? And write every day. And then you're creating a time for you to be inspired and write. And doesn't mean you're going to write, something great always but at least you're writing and you're i get the i get the concept and and like it's probably smart but i it frustrates the shit out of me because you have a very spiritual esoteric again romantic view of i think art in general Mm -hmm. when i have an idea that i think is good and I am motivated by it. it it's all consuming, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, I, maybe, maybe the problem is, is people don't have the discipline when it, when it's time. Well, that's what know? I'm saying. So like anything worth doing and anything of quality is, is hard work and inspiration is great to start. It's great to get you started, but motivation has got to give you what the thing that gets you through it, you know, because inspiration is, is fleeting. It's always chicken and egg, or or if it's always, oh, I think I, they I, I don't play know. into each other. I, being yeah. inspired is motivating. Yeah, definitely. but you know what I mean. But 
to to make a long story story short, I I totally I, I'm excited that you're excited about something because I know, like you said, sometimes it's uh, it's hit or miss. It's a little sometimes few and far between. Sometimes, yeah. So and my sis, my sister, what what's really cool about this idea is, like my sister is an event planner, mm-hmm. so she's kind of helping me figure out how I can actually logistically go about doing this. Mm-hmm. So the permit, she, I mean. Well, not even permits, just like, like her job is literally to ask people for money, mm-hmm. like to, to plan parties. And so it's like, okay, well, you're like, I, I, that's what, that's exactly the thing I need, you mm-hmm. know? So she's kind of holding my hand. I'm supposed to write up investors? this proposal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm supposed to write up this proposal tonight and give it to her to, so she can help me like hone it, mm-hmm. you know? So I can sell myself, which brings us to. I was just because, oh, dude, you took my segue. Oh <laughs> man, yes. Yeah, so, uh, people, we're we're talking about a, a special movie today. Today, uh, in our discussion of what's it about, uh, we are talking about 1980s American Gigolo, um, which I accidentally, <laughs> when I first went to watch the movie, typed in American Psycho. Completely different uh, movie. Very different. You could maybe draw some parallels, some themes, but I bet you. Could. I mean, same era too, so like a yeah. lot, of, a lot of eighties ness. But yes, yeah. we're talking about American Gigolo today. So, Seth, this it was your choice, but it also was the very first time for both of us watching this movie. So, I, I right at the bat here, I just want to lay the groundwork of like, what did you think of this movie? If you're going to give a, a review of this movie without giving away as a movie, how'd you feel about it? Did you like it? Um, what do you think? Uh, it was a little slow for me. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of drags. Uh, very moody. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a fascinating character study. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even need the plot, really. I just want to, like, live in that guy's world. And, like, there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I just want to live in the guy's world and, and, and see what, why he does the things he does. And, you know. Uh, I think it. I think it's a fascinating movie. Mm-hmm. The 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 concept is fascinating, and yeah, I thought I thought it was pretty good. I get why it's. I get why it's the movie that it is. You know, I guess mm-hmm. get get why it has a reputation. I I agree and disagree with you at the same time. In that, yeah, the film is pretty moody, um, very moody. Um, it. But it makes sense that when we talk about who wrote the movie, it makes sense why it's kind of moody. Um, yeah. Uh, I also agree it was a little bit slow at times. There really isn't much of a plot. They're kind, like The plot kind of comes in about like maybe like halfway through the movie. A plot arrives, and even then it's like kind of like not really a, a, a plot that like is like driving the story at all. Um. It is a good character study. Uh, the The main character, Julian Kay, who is the titular American Gigolo, uh, is is interesting, and it, so it is interesting to watch who he is, why he is the way he is. We don't get to know a lot about him as far as like who he was before he became this very successful male escort, um, and so it is very interesting. And there is some interesting stuff in here, but I have to say, like. I don't know. I found this movie to, to lack a lot of energy. 
Like it was yeah. very, at least a very slow, but like, even just like the, the way these characters like behave is like very low energy. And, and I, I gotta be honest, like this is like the, one of the least sexy sex movies I've ever seen. Yeah. I wasn't aroused either. Um, well, I wasn't, not that I was necessarily looking to be aroused, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? Like it's a movie about a, a male sex worker and like, the sex scenes are so not sexy at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I think, well, first of all, this, is, this movie wasn't meant to appeal to guys like us. What do uh, you mean by that? Well, I mean, in terms of the sex, like sexy element of it, Richard Gere was meant to be appealed to women. To the women. You know, he was. Yeah. Like, like he was the this first was the male. Sex, this was the sex movie for for women to ogle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fantasy so, for women with this guy that's going to take care of them, and yeah, yeah. I get what you're saying. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think you're 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 meant to pick up on the sexy in this. Um, that's but, fair. Uh, I do think it's very sensual. I think it's a very sensual movie. I think it's very intimate. Uh, I don't know if I would call it sensual. That's well, just my. I, opinion. I would say. Sensuality is tied up with intimacy, in, in my opinion. Fair enough. Uh, but continue. You, you said it's not very sexy. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just so – ultimately, I don't think I, I really – I didn't really in, find it as super enjoyable. I just kind of thought it was okay. Like, there are things in there that I, I – like I said, that I really liked. Um, a lot of themes that I, that I thought were really interesting. And, again, the character study of, like, why does this person behave the way they do? was fascinating to watch, but I wasn't, I don't know. I just didn't have a lot of like, you know, it's not a movie I would go back to. I just didn't really care for it all that much, but you know, mm. that's okay. It's okay. I it's can okay. still, yeah. I can still get a lot out of a movie. That's like, ah, oh, that movie's probably not for me. And this movie's you know, very, very LA. It's, I was actually going to ask LA. you that. That was my next question for you is like, how many of these places throughout this movie where you're like, Oh, I know where that is. Oh, I know where that oh. is. Or, a lot, but like, I don't even mean the locations. I mean, like, so you're you're, you're talking about this lack of energy, like, oh, it is it's very, like, yeah, LA lazy. It, it's it's LA lazy, you know, like all these shots of him driving around and like, you know, like there's nothing like there's nothing like being in a car in Los Angeles. Like it's its own thing, especially like if you're in a nice car in Los Angeles. Yeah, like driving down the 101, like that's. That's its or, own world. Or the PCH. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, so it's, a nice car driving out of the PCH is like... You made it. You did it. Yeah. You know? That's, that's why you're there, to be in yeah. a nice car driving down the PCH. No kidding. And, and uh, they, you know, he's made it. Mm -hmm. Like, in his way, he's made it. And uh, I don't know. I, I actually really... There's certain things about this movie I really relate to and enjoy, and uh, I could only, I could have almost lived that life, and I didn't even know it uh, at the time. Whoa, uh, whoa, whoa! Getting is... a little conceited, aren't we? Think you could be a high class male sex worker, do you? I know. Uh, I almost know. accidentally. I, say, I, I know you. I accidentally know you. Did. <laughs> I know you know. And that was actually I, was that at the Beverly Hills Hotel? In the exact seat he's sitting in. Was no sitting. shit. I met that woman. Yeah. Like, which is so crazy. Funny. Which is crazy because I'd never seen this movie. You know what I mean? Like, That's crazy. 
Isn't that wild? Dang, that was separated by like 40 years almost. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, I, I've told this story on the podcast before, but I think it's relative. Yeah, to... bring it up. Yeah. So when I first moved to LA, uh, I would go to the Beverly Hills Hotel and I would hang out at the bar in the polo room. Uh, like it was my job every Monday night. I would go to the comedy store and then I would go to the Beverly Hills Hotel. And uh, I, like I said, I'd never seen American Gigolo, so I didn't know it took place there. Um, and so I would sit at the bar and I would talk to Jimmy, the bartender. And there was this elderly woman that would also sit at the bar sometimes. And her name was Livia Lancelotti. I'll tell you her name only because I don't she's think dead. it's her real name. Oh. <laughs> or she's, I don't know. She, she definitely, that was more. I haven't spoken to her in forever. Um, but basically, we got along really well. I made her laugh. And she was very interested in my career. And she, I don't know. She was either some sort of producer. She was the ex-wife of a deceased, or the, I guess not the ex-wife, but the widow of a deceased Italian artist who was like a big deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, she basically was, she was like, my name is Livia Lencelotti. Don't ask me about my job. You know, she was either like a producer or a spy. I, I don't know. She's she in was the mafia. A, yeah, like it was weird. And I saw her one week and she was like, do you want to go see, I have opening night tickets to this Al Pacino play. He's playing Tennessee Williams. Do you want to, do you want to go? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I want to go. Like, there's no way I'm going to. You mean Texan Williams? <laughs> <laughs> but so like. I'm getting to go see this, like, and possibly meet. Like, she made it out, like, I might get to meet Al Pacino. And uh, so, like, it was in Pasadena at the Pasadena Playhouse. And, you know, I brought flowers because I thought it was a nice gesture for, like, her, mm. you know? Yeah. And, nice. yeah, and I, like, I was very appreciative. We went to this Hawaiian restaurant, and we had dinner. And then... Uh, we went and saw the show, but it was like super weird because she like went somewhere else during the show. Like she sat somewhere else. I, I don't know. Uh, and then, and then like as we were leaving, she was like, "I want you to be my assistant." She's telling me that she wants me to be her assistant, and I was like, "Yeah, I I would be down for that." Like I was thinking that would be my job, you know, because I hadn't got a job yet. Yeah, and uh, but then I was like something creeped in the back of my head and I was like, I just want you to know, like I'm, I would love to be your assistant, but like that would be all it would be, you know, like there wouldn't be anything, you know, more than that. And as soon as I said that, I never heard from her ever again. Maybe she was insulted that you would even assume this. Well, I mean, it was a weird situation, you know, yeah, it was a weird, weird situation. No, for sure. So, uh, and you know, Maybe you know what? Maybe she got canceled. <laughs> Maybe, Maybe she I did don't this think to so, some other poor struggling comedian, and whoop, went right back on to to Italy. But I mean, if I had like, if I had like faltered in judgment there, and like just continued down that road, who knows? You know, you could have you could have been Julian K. Julian K. All right. Talk about weird. <laughs> Talk about, about weird, weird, man. Let's talk about weird. Let's talk about weird for a second. Let's talk about how this 
uh, film came to be, where where this film started, whose brainchild it was, uh, and uh, how it came to be a film that we've seen now. So, this film was written and directed by Paul Schrader. Uh, Paul Schrader, known for writing a lot of movies, so this is going to take a minute. Um, the Yakuza, Taxi Driver, Obsession, Rolling Thunder, Blue Collar, Hardcore, Old Boyfriends, Raging Bull, Mishima, A Life of Four Chapters, The Mosquito Coast, Light of the Day, The Last Temptation of Christ, Light Sleeper, City Hall, Touch, Affliction, Forever Mine, Bringing Out the Dead, The Walker, Dying of the Light, First Reformed, The Card Counter, and There Ain't No Saints, and Master Gardener. The, and a lot of these films he also directed, as well as co-wrote some of them. And then some films that he directed but did not write are Cat People, Patty Hearst, The Comfort of Strangers, Witch Hunt, Autofocus, Dominion prequel to The Exorcist, Adam Resurrected, The Canyons, and Dog Eat Dog. So among those that, that those credits, I mean, a few things stick out. R- the, the writer of Taxi Driver and Raging Bull yeah. – um, I mean, obviously, to cl- and and the Last Temptation of Christ. Um, yeah, some classic Hollywood films. Um, however, he only has one Oscar nomination in his entire career. Do you know what that is for? No, what? First Reformed came out in twenty nineteen. Um, this is about a minister like struggling with his faith. In a in in a church, but still, uh, first time in 2017. So like 40 years into his career is the first time that he got nominated for an Oscar. Wow! So, isn't I mean, the director of this Scarface? This didn't the same director direct Scarface? Movie, no, no. Like oh, Paul okay. Paul Schrader directed this film too. Directed American Gigolo, but he didn't direct Scarface. Okay. Uh, that's you're thinking of uh uh. Gosh, what's his name? Um, I should know this. Uh, De Palma? I think Brian De Palma directed. Yeah, Brian De Palma directed an 83 Scarface. Okay. Brian De Palma. Um, well, yeah. So, like, just a, a – I mean, that's just his credits. That's not even the story of this movie. That's just his credits. So this is the story of this movie in particular. So, American Gigolo is one of five screenplays that Hollywood icon Paul Schrader wrote – in 1976 while he was teaching screenwriting at his alma mater, UCLA. By this time in his career, Schrader had already broken into the business with his critically and commercially successful script for Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, but it would be a few more years before American Gigolo would hit the silver screen. Early on in production, John Travolta was attached to play the titular character, uh, but unfortunately had to drop out due to uh, his mother's death and his father's illness. After Travolta's exit, that's Superman. That's the story. That's the story. I know John Travolta would have done. Oh my gosh! And in in let's see, I believe it's seventy six was when Travolta was attached, or like seventy eight or something like that. So this was like kind of right around when Greece. Yeah, Greece was seventy eight. Well, this after he did Greece. So like, the, Greece comes out and I, then he's gonna play a, a sex worker. I've mentioned. I've mentioned in the last podcast that the reason I chose this movie was because I heard about it on a different oh, podcast. That's right. And, uh, they mention in, in, uh, the, the podcast got to give them credit where it's credits, credits due is, is, uh, uh, you must remember this 
it's about old Hollywood and, and the stories in old Hollywood. But they mentioned the John Travolta thing in that podcast. And mm-hmm. it's his official reason was that his, he had family stuff going on. Mm-hmm. But the unofficial reason is he, he didn't, didn't want to play a character. He didn't want to oh. do a, a, a character that could be con- perceived as right. gay because he was already. And so it's debated if, and like, yeah. So, and cause that's like a whole thing about John Travolta is like, right. Nobody knows if he's gay or not. And he was married to uh, Kelly Preston for however long rest her, rest her soul. It's a, it's a huge kind of underground secret that John Travolta is gay in Hollywood. That's so yeah. That's a, that's one of those Hollywood, very popular Hollywood rumors. Yeah. So it's like, John Travolta didn't want to play a like as a closeted if he was closeted. I say we're, closeted I was definitely going to bring that up later in the what's it about segment uh, about yeah. the under the undertones that this film has with like maybe that Julian is either closeted or at least like potentially like bi bisexual. Yeah. Um, yeah. At, in the early eighties, that was like a really scandalous kind of yeah. thing, especially to put yeah. in a major film. So yeah, Travolta. Sounds like he probably would have wanted to stay away from that. But again, his official reason was that his his mother had just passed away and his father was sick. Who knows? But anyway, knows? after Travolta had exited, Superman himself, Christopher Reeves, was offered the role but turned it down. And then the much quote-unquote beloved comedian Chevy Chase was even considered at one point. However, Whoa, weird. Yeah, weird. I know. And I again, everybody, I put beloved in – in quotes. <laughs> However, Schrader was able to go with his original first choice, a young Richard Gere. Gere, still early in his acting career, had only played some smaller roles to this point, and American Gigolo would be the film to elevate him to leading man status. Whereas acting juggernauts Meryl Streep and Glenn Close were also considered for the role of Michelle before it eventually went to Lauren Hutton. The film began shooting in and around Los Angeles in the winter of 1979 and was released in theaters the following year in February of 1980. It received mostly favorable reviews, but some found it to be slightly charmless. However, that didn't stop the film from grossing over $52 million on a $5 million budget, making it Schrader's most profitable film by far to that point and spawning an Amazon Prime series with The Walking Dead's John Barenthal taking up the mantle of male escort Julian Kay, which comes out this year. A few of the film's other claims to fame are this marks the first time a major Hollywood actor visually displayed full frontal male nudity um, in a Hollywood film. It had never happened to that point before. Uh, the film also is credited with popularizing Armani in the L.A. area due to the suits being prominently featured in this film. And then lastly, the film's theme, Call Me, by the band Blondie, uh, which was written for the film specifically, would become one of the band's most successful and recognizable songs of their careers, peaking at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and remaining there for six consecutive weeks. So a lot of pop cultural impact, as it were. And while American Gigolo may not seem like it's one of those all-time classics that film fans constantly bring up as one of Schrader's most iconic works, American Gigolo was perhaps a bit ahead of its time in the early 80s, and yet its cultural impact subtly remains. That is the story of American Gigolo. Nice. Yeah. Interesting um, little history. 
it's like, oh, okay, this is this is some interesting stuff going on. A lot of a lot of talent was around this movie. Like a lot of like circling, yeah. burgeoning young talent that have become, you know, stars I think this movie's, in Hollywood. I think this movie's extremely grounded. Like it is it has a very real feel to it. It really does. I, yeah. Everything everything about it I buy. You know, there's nothing mm-hmm. there's nothing there's no stretch no. to this. Like it's like if you just if you just listened in LA, you might hear this story, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and so I, I, I did enjoy, I enjoyed this movie. I would give it, if I had to give it a number, I'd give it an eight, like 8.3. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. I, I liked it a lot. Um, if I, but, so when I, when I rate movies, when, like if I, like people ask me, Oh, like on scale one to 10, what would you give this movie? Or like, if you like rotten tomatoes ranked it, it's so it's hard. Cause it's like, do you want me to rank it by how much I liked it? Or do you want me to rank it by how good of a movie I think it is? Cause there's a difference, right? Like you can watch something and not like it, but be, but can you be like, but I can understand that it's a good movie just cause I don't like it. doesn't mean it's not good. Yeah. You know? Um, so like, I, I think it's like a seven as far as like how good of a movie it is, but for my enjoyment, it's probably more like a five. Mm. that's just my personal opinion though that's fair that's fair so i think it should we do i'll give it a six okay oh is it time is it time for the game let's do it yes let's do the game the log flog the log come on all y'all flog the log flog the log (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we're not sticking with that but i have another uh better title for it today okay so flog the log or the uh imdb summary game no it's not imdb anymore it's just the summary game i'm i wrote the summary for this film uh i'm going to uh read what i wrote and seth is going to tell me how good of a summary he thinks i gave uh last week i got a perfect 10 which raised my average to just below an eight just below an eight so i'm seeing see if i can get up above that eight soon it's gonna be tough i would have to get nines nines and tens so we'll have to see if i can get above that eight but here is what this film is. This is the general plot and story of American Gigolo. Classy male escort Julian Kay lives a life of fancy suits, nice cars, and high society women. And even though he provides pleasure for a living, he struggles to find pleasure for himself. That's mm. what I got. Okay. I, I think it's a little clunky. Damn. It's a little clunky. I'll Damn. give you a seven. I'm gonna oh, give you a seven on it. Okay. Yeah. And I don't think I don't I don't think uh I, I think there is a plot. A key like I think you're leaving out the plot. I think you're leaving about, I think the plot's subtle. Yeah, you're leaving out the plot. It's a sex crime it's, thriller. Uh, it's not. I wouldn't I call disagree. it a thriller. That's I think that's uh, why I I, 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 I think you need to rewatch it. I think you need to rewatch it because here's why. I watched why. it twice. Oh wow! The, you you doubt you doubt whether or not as a, as an audience member you doubt whether or not Julian is the murderer. I don't think he is. I, he's I don't think he is either. I think what proves that he's not is when he finds the jewels. Mm-hmm. But right, if he, if he knew where the until he, that if he stole the jewels, he would have known where they were. Right. But until that point, as an audience member, you're like, did he? Was he here? Huh? I guess I didn't, um, and maybe that's why I, I was like, "No, I don't think so." Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he's not that there's... kind of person. 
they make it very ambiguous. They make it very ambiguous until that exact moment where he's like, he finds the jewels. And then you're like, okay, it is, he is being framed. We can I, believe this guy. Again, I guess, I guess the film's trying. I just never bought it. He just, like I said, I just, he just isn't that. He's kind of an asshole a little bit, but like, he's just kind of a little bit arrogant, but he's like, not like he's, so, I guess this is my thing. Like the character of Julian is so like, I don't know what the word for it is uh, per se, but like, he's just so soft. You Tender. I mean? Yeah. There's just such a like a, a gentleness to him, even when he's like being like manipulative. Like we see him do yeah. a, this kind of thing where he's kind of pushing people around a little bit. It's still so. It's just so gentle, and, yeah. and it's like, he, I, was like he, I don't think for a second that he could beat and murder somebody. Right, but however, this is the one thing that I thought for a se- one second. Maybe Mr. Ryman, the woman's husband. Yeah, you know, in that in that sex act that he was doing for them, like forced him to to be a little bit rough with her to the point where maybe well, he, she accidentally died after he had yeah. left. After yeah. he had left, but he didn't know. That's the that's the implication, you know. So I don't think he murdered her, and I don't think it would have been her. So I guess that's what my thing is. Like, I was like, I don't think he murdered her. Maybe. Maybe he accidentally killed her, but like he's not acting like that at all. Yeah, if he accidentally killed her, there would be way more remorse, and he just seems confused. Definitely not a sociopath. So I, I just he his behavior is so not of somebody that accidentally murdered somebody. Like if he was a sociopath, maybe he behaved in the way he does, but he's not. He's not behaving like someone that accidentally kill, could have killed somebody. You know what I mean? She's not acting that Maybe, way. but I think I think you're supposed to be on his side, but I think there's supposed to be doubt and ambiguity because we don't we don't know his world totally. We're not seeing mm. every detail of his I knew it was Leon from the start that yeah. he shifty. Yeah, I mean yeah, he was shifty, but I mean it could all like you don't know who's in on it. Like there's a level of paranoia with this movie that's cool because everyone is against him, you know. Well, uh, <laughs> I think the movie does a really good job of showing us why that is. We'll talk about that yeah. in a minute, though. Why, like, because I think that's a big theme of the movie. Uh, yeah. The, the the behavior that that it's kind well, of it, you know what this is. This is a this film is a almost like a a classic. Uh stage tragedy in a lot of ways you have a character who's a king you know he's even sometimes when he says his name julian k it sounds like he's saying julian king sometimes um Mm. and it is like he's at the top of his game you know he's he's got all the power in the world that he can want or at least you know for him and we see this tragic fall for him you know this systematic dismantling of his empire it's very oedipus it's very hamlet in a lot of ways i gotta what since you're getting into it let me just go ahead and ask the question since it's all right movie ricardo blade diaz the american gigolo what's it about it's about sex 
No, it's actually really not. Like it kind of is, but it's it's for me, and I think the reason why, like, I can like I'm so conflicted about whether or not I really like this movie a lot, and like maybe like self analyzing a little bit. It it's it gets on something that like something is something that I struggle with, which is like vulnerability and and physical intimacy. Yeah, and emotional intimacy, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. While and it's it's a it's a it's made a big point in the movie that Julian is this great male escort, this great sex worker. He's you know top. He's top of the top. He's he's he works for high society, rich, important women. You know that's his thing. But he also only works with older women. Which is like his thing. Yeah. He works with more elderly women, not like elderly, elderly, but like older women mostly. Um, yeah. and there's a moment where he's with the woman that he falls in love with, which is her name is Michelle, um, who's a politician's wife. Um, they kind of end up having a love affair. And love is a strong word. Love is a strong word. It's it's close to love as he can. That's the point I'm trying to get at. It's as close to love as he can get, you know, or at least he's able to, or he's willing to let himself get. But anyway, there's a point where they've been sleeping together. You know, he's not charging her. So, I mean, I guess it's a relationship. Um, They've been sleeping together for a while. And she, she's talking about how he takes care of her really, really well. But, she notices that he can't he is not he can't accept pleasure he can give it but he's unable to receive it that you know once it's time to make love he goes to work right it he he takes the emotion out of those things a lot of the times and it's it becomes fully focused on the on the woman and and she says i want to know you and she's and he's like well you've slept with me she's so you know me and she goes, that's not everything. He's like, well, that for me, that's all there there is to know. You know, yeah. all of me is this. This, this is all me. And so, like, there's this, you know, who knows what his past is, but there's some, definitely something he's he's not wanting to share. Um, and he doesn't want people to know about him, and he just wants people to see him as this this one thing. And so, for me, this this film is all about. The fact that Julian is not able to be vulnerable or or intimate, truthfully intimate with anybody, and he pushes everybody away. And because he's so arrogant, he pushes everybody away. It's what causes his downfall. You know, everybody either either they're coming after him or they're unwilling to help him because he he alienates them. He alienates himself. And so I think this film is a cautionary tale of like what happens when you stay so closed off from people and you push people away because you don't want to deal yeah. with something about yourself. Uh, okay. And yeah, that's what I see from this movie. So what? So what? So what's the what's the theme, Glenn? What's the what theme? Glenn is, is the, the the gosh. If I would have like boil it into a sentence, it'd be like. The dangers in running away from your own vulnerability. Okay. Because, again, and I think we can bring it up here because I think it's important. 
it is on several occasions heavily, heavily implied that Julian might be either gay or or bisexual of some kind. He's he's you know he's part of the LGBTQ community in some way, and it's not just because he's a he's a sex worker. You know, I I don't think I don't I th- I think he's he's probably bisexual if he's anything. Um, I would think so because he definitely seems to like you know be attracted to women. And I I don't think so. I don't think he knows what he is. I think that's part think, of the problem. Like, I think, yeah, I think in like the the late seventies, early eighties, like struggling with this concept of like your the sexuality spectrum was way harder. And so, like, if you at any time were attracted to men, you were gay, right? Like, there was yeah. no, you know, like I guess people can argue like the sixties and seventies. There was a lot of like this free love idea going on, so there was like a culture of, of like a gay culture that was a little bit more underground and things like that. But like, yeah. as far as like mainstream in, in the public eye, if you were attracted to men at all, even if you had had a sexual encounter with a man, even once, like you yeah. were gay. Yeah. And so, and that label at that time was really tough. You know, you made yeah. you a target. To, to a lot of to a lot of stuff, a lot of hate, a lot of hate. Um, I mean, it still does to this day, honest, honestly. But it's a bigger community nowadays. Yeah. So yeah. again, it's it's heavily implied that potentially Julian is running away from that moniker. Um, we yeah. hear it from uh, well his 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 dame or his uh, Jane or whatever the a female John is called. Um, she, when she's like, when she mentions something about, uh, so this, I'm going to point this out for anybody that's, that's going to watch this from maybe after listening to this podcast, they use, I'm going to say the word, but again, I'm just saying it. So you guys know what word I'm talking about. They use the word faggot a lot in this movie. A yeah. lot. Yeah. Um, uh, so and it's not, it's not, it's, it's in a bad way. It's a very derogatory. Um, a John is a. John is a customer, so oh, okay. it's, a, it's his it's his pimp. Just yeah. to clarify, thank you. So it's his lady that. pimp. Yeah, his yeah. lady pimp. Well, anyway, she she uh, he says something about uh, you know uh, the these other uh, male uh, sex workers that she has in her stable. He mentions something about calling them gay derogatorily. And she looks at him very pointedly. It's like, you're one to talk basically. And then he looks at her like, how dare, how dare you bring, bring this up about me? So it's, and then then throughout the movie, he keeps refusing to do what he calls any like gay work. Right. He refuses. But the biggest, to me, the biggest moment that is uh, revealing of his sexuality is, uh, so it's, the big moment where he and Michelle are in bed together and it, we, we just mentioned it. Like, she's like, I want to talk. Right. Mm. And it's, it's very subtle, but she's like, you can't hide anymore. Like, I know you, like, I know you're not re- going to receive pleasure from this. Cause I know. And she's like, basically implying, I know, I know what you are. 
Mm-hmm. And then he's like, and he even like admits it subtly. Like, I, I know, like, I know. And, mm-hmm. and it's like, you can tell it's frustrating to him because it's like, he doesn't want to be. Mm-hmm. But it's like he loves everything about this person, except he's not receiving any sexual. Sexual, pleasure. yeah, yeah. So, and so, and so, yeah. So for me, the movie is hinged on this idea of like he's there's something very vulnerable that he's holding on to so tightly, for a lot of reasons, and and some of those reasons you can argue are, are valid, uh, especially at that time period. Um, I want to say when was like the big like AIDS outbreak? Was that later eighties? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of, from what I gather, from things I've listened to in the past, and uh, it was like an undercurrent in the early 80s, like there was this thing going on that nobody knew how to talk about, and it wasn't made clear until the late 80s. Okay. So it was happening, it was just not like as pandemic as it as it. Yeah, um, and so... I mean, like I said, there's just a lot of negative, especially, I guess, you know, in that time period, even more, sometimes even more negative views yeah. of, of gay people. Um, and so, again, maybe some valid reasons for him not to, like, want to label himself in that way. Um, but Well, and, it, and it's – if that's the case, I mean, like, it's hurting his business to be seen. Truthfully, yeah, he could, be, he could be making a lot more money. And that's if he would do kink and he would do if he would do gay work. Well, no, I'm I, I would say uh, well, yes, he could make more money in the short term, but I think he's thinking long term. Mm-hmm. So like so I, I think we're getting to what I think this movie is about. Go ahead, share. Yeah. And Open uh, so so to me, this movie is about the commodity exchange. It can love can love transcend economics. Can love transcend an economical exchange um continue so like i think i think julian in regards to what we just spoke about like there's a level of like this is the kind of business he runs and he can't run this business if there's a reputation of him having a homosexual past or uh he's involved with too many drugs or like he is he's creating a lifestyle that these women can buy into and if he has a bad reputation they can't buy into it mm-hmm. he is creating a product like he is the product he's creating the product uh and he has to stay on brand um so and for him, like, so, so this is where I like, I'm very interested in this film in regarding this concept, but I haven't, I'm, I'm still thinking it through in some ways. So of course I'm going to ramble a little, um, but what I, what I think is fascinating about this character is he hates to be in debt. He hates to be indebted to somebody else. So as long as like, he can ask for things as long as he feels he has owed them. So like he can go ask his pimp, he can go ask his, he can go ask people for things that he feels like they owe him. But Michelle is offering help and he cannot accept it, you know? Uh, But at the same time, it's strange because he's like, why is he continuing to see Michelle, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's almost like 
even though it's not a safety net, it is a safety net. Mm-hmm. Well, she's know? a pretty rich and connected woman. Right. Um, but he's gay, probably. He's probably gay. But again, like, I think I, th- I understand what you're saying. And so I- I'm going to let you get back to it. But I think at the core of that, of like not wanting to owe anybody anything, not wanting to be in debt, like, for me, that that gets to the core of this idea of like he doesn't want to be vulnerable in any way. It's like owing uh, somebody I think he's, makes you extremely vulnerable to them, right? Right. I think he's so we have to also this guy was probably not wealthy. I say, I, right. I I say uh, we, initially this is all speculation. Because we yeah. because literally you learn nothing about Julian before yeah. the events of the movie. But I think nothing. I think the I think the most I think the, the most revealing line about Julian is Julian himself says, I've been looking something for my whole life and I don't know what it is. And and I think I think that's evident in his his choices. Because I, I don't know if he I think he doesn't know if he's his sexuality. I don't like he might be attracted to men and women. Like I, I think he's I think he's very, very I think he's unsure about a lot of things. And he's just found something he's good at and he just does that, you know? Like I think he's been told this is what success looks like and he's done everything he knows in his power to to create a product that will get him there. Like Julian is a really good example. Like, I mean, he is, he is the epitome of American capitalism. Like he is, he is capitalism boiled down to uh, like a diamond, I guess. Like he's, he is like, even when he's like having the shoes conversation, like, Mm-hmm. with the detective and he says some people are above the law you know like that's exactly how corporations view it you know like mm-hmm. they are only bound to the law to the degree that the law catches them sometimes laws are wrong you know like they have this above the law mentality and so it's interesting because inevitably in a society that is surround like completely constructed by capitalism love is going to start getting confusing within that construct because love isn't a capitalist exchange but our brains are just completely wired to exchange commodity so it's love can't be love can't be this thing that is you give me something and I give you something or it, it, it's not about how it can't be how I, what am I receiving in this relationship to make it worth my time? Right. Mm-hmm. Which is for a lot of people, what I think love is, you know, as long as there's an equal exchange of commodity, then they're happy. And whenever it, well- because imbalance i i i mean some people might say and i i i would agree with this is i don't think that that's necessarily people might think that's what love is but i don't think that that would actually be what actual love is but you know everybody has their own definition 
but like, I don't think I, that's what love is. I think that's what love has become in American culture. Interesting. Okay, continue. I apologize for interrupting. No, no. Uh, I mean, I I would like to hear your thoughts on it. Like, uh, I think, I think that personally, I don't think that's what love is. I think love has to transcend. Tran- I think love has to transcend economics, right? And that's why oh, we well, see yeah. the end. That's so why we see okay. it. I, okay, okay. I, I I think I can I can latch onto this in 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 something that I'm going through right now. In I for a very 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 long time rejected the idea of doing dating apps. Um, yeah. Just because I mean there was an insecurity there of like what if nobody matches with me so like some of that was there of like fear of like what if nobody wants me type of thing it's like a confirmation of that kind of thing but once you're on it it's it becomes kind of a, like a whatever thing but. But this idea of commoditizing and almost like economizing, if that's a word, I don't know. But that is a word. Relationships uh, yeah. is something that naturally happens when you're on these dating apps. So it's like the you're, you're presented with, with someone's resume, basically, on these apps. Yeah. You're presented with their Definitely. resume. And you have to in, – in – however long you want to spend on that decide whether or not that person is worth starting a conversation with and most and like i would say like 80 percent of people don't make it through that that initial job interview process yeah. i don't i don't want to spend time talking to that person i don't want to spend time talking to that person i don't think it's worth my time to talk to that person but 20 percent get through right i think it would be worth my time to talk to that person okay then Depending on however many matches you get, everybody gets different matches. I don't get a whole lot of matches, but some people get more than I do. Anyway, you get a match. You start a conversation. Oh. Go ahead. Go ahead. So, just just to like expound on this just slightly, we'll go put it in a to- like a little bit. Okay. But so, people, I, I've kind of had this conversation with people before, mm-hmm. and they get annoyed with the like, well, you know, it's, it matters because it's your relationship, you know, like you got to be careful about who you choose to date. Like, it's not like they get a little like grumbly Mm -hmm. about making comments about it. Mm -hmm. Well, Sarah has this app, it's Bumble, but it's Bumble for friends. Mm -hmm. And like, once you put it in the friendship light, it sounds way more screwed up. Like, it's like, nah, I don't, I don't want to be your I friend. I want to be friends with you. <laughs> I don't want to be friends with you. Like, that's, like that's, you're not, you're not attra- worth my, you're not worth my time to be platonic. Yeah. Like you, oh, you're not attractive. Right. You're not attractive enough to be your friend, to be my friend or like, I don't know. It's like, so Just it's looking like, at you, I don't think I'd like you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's like rough. for me, it's like default. You're my friend until like, you're not right. my friend. You know, oh, so like people, any of these people on these dating apps for me could be my friend. Like I went on a, a date with a, a a very nice woman uh, a few months ago. Uh, the date was fine; we got along really well. But like I didn't feel like a really a, a romantic physical spark or anything like that. And and it didn't seem like maybe she did either. Like we got along well, but we're like, okay, maybe we'll go out again, and we just never really did because I don't think either of us re- truly, again. We didn't feel like, uh, I don't know if this is worth my time to spend, you know, to spend and invest so much time in the relationship. Yeah. But I think it's like nice, like you could, we could be friends, but like, not necessarily something I want to spend my time on, um, which is fine. Like I'm not insulted by that because I also felt the same way. So like, I get, I get this, I get that. Um, 
any of those people could be my friends. So that's weird. You're right. It is a little bit screwed up yeah. that like, it's like, there's a dating app for just being friends, but, and you reject people. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, That's I don't want to be your friend. Yeah. I don't want to be your friend. What is this, the playground? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, what is Justin doing back there? Is he LARPing? No, he, he, I'm sure he's working on a monologue. <laughs> I'm sorry, I guess I, that's technically, I that's technically LARPing. That's technically yes. LARPing. You know, this uh, is the house of actors. Or maybe he's working on an audition. I don't know. But uh, yeah. so yeah, back to uh, saying, so yeah, like, in in the dating app, you maybe about twenty percent of the people profiles you see, if that, make it to your next level of like job interview, relationship interview, uh, and then you start talking to certain people. And again, after a certain period of time of talking to somebody, you decide whether or not it's worth your time to ask them out, or you just ghost yeah. them, <laughs> or or sometimes you're honest and you're like, I just don't know if this is is that this is going to con- go beyond this, um, and then. Yeah, again, even smaller, you're like, okay, you're worth spending my time on as a date. And then you go on a date, it's okay, you're worth spending my time on. And you're right, there is a, a an exchange of like yeah. time and effort, There's, energy. There is an there is economy in there is an economy in dating. There's an economy there, of power. And on a there social app like that, there's a there's a social contract of like yeah. we're both choosing to spend to exchange time and, and energy on this. This, I mean, this conversation can go a lot of ways. It's, it's a complicated conversation. It's not an easy conversation because you're breaking down an exchange of goods that are tied to intimacy and tied to like, it's not easy. You, you can, it's not fun to separate these two things and analyze them this way mm-hmm. because it makes us uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but you can. That's what we do. And and so and i need it to be my end goal that i believe in love Mm. and that i believe that in order for real love to exist it has to transcend this exchanging of goods so but like okay go ahead but it's so hard to transcend it it's so difficult to transcend that exchange of goods like i think that's what's hopeful about the end of this movie but it's there's still room for ambiguity there because basically they have to lose everything in order to be together, both of them. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then they're starting from a completely equal place, mm-hmm. but it's also debatable that this is Julian completely surrendering himself to a woman mm-hmm. because he's completely, he's, he's totally indebted to her. Mm-hmm. Like she has given her life so he can have his. Mm-hmm. And forever so like yeah there's no repaying that debt right yeah and so like the way julian thinks it's almost like he has to succumb to this is my person because you saved my life Mm -hmm. so he's like forever going to serve her right you know so it's like it's complicated it's not it's still not perfect but it's at least he's not in prison you know like he's her prisoner in a way. But like that that moment, that moment, that last That's moment, yeah, where where he is heads down and his hands up, but her hands like above his, right? Well, it's not. That's not what I found it like. I mean, yes, what I found interesting was almost like a a pose. The way she puts her hand is like a queen blessing, mm-hmm. like 
of peasants. And like the way and the music that's playing in the background is very royal. Mm. And so like it's it's almost like he has like decided that this is my queen who I shall serve. Yeah, and, and he's kind of bowing his head. There is like a very uh, like I serve you type of idea, and like this, yeah. like, this deep bowing of the head. I get what you're saying, and I also agree with you. I think like my ideal version of love is like it's kind of like what you're saying, where like it transcends this idea of an exchange of any kind of like in a relationship. Like it's like oh, uh, I did this, so you owe me that. Like that's a dangerous yeah. place to be. And when it becomes like a, I just did this because I care and love you and I don't expect anything in return for that. I just did it because I, because I knew that would make you happy or, 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 I mean, I think a theme that's kind of running through a lot of our conversations lately, um, for some reason, maybe me, I don't know, but like authenticity. Mm -hmm. So authenticity is a major part of, I think, transcending this exchange, right? Like, you have to be able to also not do things, mm-hmm. you know, or do the things you would normally do without that person, which might not be what they like and have acceptance for it, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, but it's so hard. Cause it's like, so, so Julian's an interesting case because he actually, he gets off on pleasing women. Right, like that's what he enjoys. He enjoys the well, act of pleasing. Well, we don't. I wouldn't necessarily say he gets off. Gets um, off, maybe not the correct choice of words. I think he, he finds. I think he, he. I think he finds value. So, like, I yeah. don't think he thinks he has any value other than being a sex object. He does not yeah. value himself. He he, he kind of hates himself a little bit. You know, he doesn't like himself very much, or at least he's scared of himself. I think he just. I think he's a scared little kid. Yeah. Like, like he, I think he's, he's created a world that he can control. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I mean, you can, you can get into some mommy issues in this with the idea of like him, like wanting, oh, to, definitely. wanting to please older women. It's There's definitely going on in there. I'm a armchair yes. psychologist. Well, I mean, you can, so, so I don't know if you, caught this but did you see the moment so before he meets michelle Mm -hmm. he has the uh ann who is his lady pimp Mm -hmm. yes they're like he's like he's maybe they have michelle and him have met but the lady pimp looks a lot like michelle they're both yeah they do look very similar very uh, older women scandinavian looking yes and so like there's this moment where that he helps ann onto the beach and he sets her down and he has this like look in his eyes as she's like turning away. That's like, like a deep, deep want. Mm -hmm. Like, like, like this deep, I want you to want me. I want you to. And and so I think there is like a level of mommy issues, if you will, like not so like this Ann woman is the one of the women that made him. Mm -hmm. You know, she births so him I, in his current in his yeah. current incarnation. Yeah, yeah. So he, he says it's much. like I created you. Yeah, he wants to be have the approval of a of a woman like this. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So I, I I I don't know where we were at. Um. 
Well, we were, we were talking about again. I don't think he gets uh, uh, gets off in the way of like I don't think he gets sexual pleasure from pleasing no. women. No, it's not. But, but it gives him his what he thinks is his value. It's like I yeah. I, I can do a thing that most other men can't. I can give pleasure to these elderly women who nobody cares about, and nobody takes care of. He enjoys it. Like yeah, he, he does enjoy. Get it. off is not the right. He doesn't. But he does enjoy doing it. Yes. Um, and it's so it okay, I remember where I was going with this. So for him, the act of giving is actually providing him with something. Mm-hmm. Right? So it gets it gets complicated because he needs to give to feel like mm-hmm. he is receiving. Yeah. So when he receives, he doesn't feel like he feels <laughs> that makes him feel vulnerable and feels like he owes right like he doesn't think he he feels like he has to be giving Mm -hmm. in order to uh be equal with his partner Mm -hmm. you know and you're saying that this relationship is doomed um i don't i don't know if it's doomed i don't see it i mean i see i mean i if if I had to be like realistic about it, that I see them being together, and uh, uh, he's probably got side pieces that are men, mm-hmm. you know. And gosh, what a cliche! Yeah, but I I think, but honestly, uh, there is I think hope there because I think there is authenticity in it. Like I think that. Well, if they agree I think that, she- that the arrangement <laughs> works for them, sure. Who am I to judge? You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that he needs her. I think he needs this motherly figure. And she needs him. And he also needs sexual pleasure from men. Mm-hmm. So, like, I do think it works, but I don't think it's going to be a traditional relationship. Mm-hmm. Which, the only, like, which she would be the one to end it. Because oh, she, she would get would, fed up with him. Because he, <laughs> but I don't he, think she will. Her. Right. I don't think she will because no. I think she, when she says, "I have to," I love you. Mm. You know, like I think she means that. You know. Yeah, I think she means it. I just, you know, sometimes that stuff fades over time. But I do think it's like a mother. I think it is a mother-son type of relationship. I don't yeah, think it's a. a, bit a part, up. Yeah. And, uh, um, I mean, to to go to your point, like, if again, if we want to get to more the more personal side of things uh, on on the show here, of like our our personal connections with some of this stuff, like we've kind of talked about this before. I don't know if we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but like, um, gosh, I'm really uncomfortable sharing this. <laughs> I just realized I I got really nervous. Um, so like, I can relate to Julian in this idea of like feeling feeling good about giving pleasure right so like i haven't had that many sexual experiences uh but the few that i've had my favorite parts of those those encounters have always been when i'm taking care of my partner that's when i feel a the most sexually confident and b like when i'm the most turned on is during those moments when I'm servicing yeah. my partner. 
Um, yeah. Because you feel and, like a provider. Right. I'm, I, but also like, you know, I, I, I don't have a lot of physical intimacy in my, like my dating history. Like, especially like all the way, I lost my virginity when I was 22, like right before I was getting ready to graduate college. Like literally like the night before graduating college was when I lost my virginity. Wow. Yeah. It was one of a great graduation gift. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but leading up to that, we, we had been physical in other ways. And like, again, like I felt the most sexually desired I had ever felt in my entire life when I was providing pleasure, not receiving it, you know? Yeah. At least not to receiving it directly. I was I was receiving pleasure, but it was it was it was in an indirect way. Um, yeah. And because like I don't I don't often feel sexually desirable to people, you know. And so like when yeah. I'm giving somebody pleasure, it's like, okay, no, this person is desiring me at least at it's in, on some level because I am providing a a pleasure for them. And so yeah. I get that. I get that for Julian of like, especially when it's like uh, for somebody that's like maybe more of a, a challenge, somebody that's not always that like physically intimate, you know? Yeah. That's like, like one oh. of my favorite parts in the whole movie is him talking about giving that woman an mm-hmm. orgasm. No, it's one of the, I mean, it's why I keep going back to it about like, it is one of the best parts of the movie because it's the most insight into him that we get almost really yeah. like very, very um unambiguous insight into him of mm-hmm. like i want to take care of these people because no one else takes care of them in this way you know when you think about it's honestly it's a punchline in a lot of movies and a lot of media of like elderly women and sex you yeah. know like ew gross haha gr- disgusting that's gross elderly women and sex is gross i'm not saying that's true i'm saying that's something that is played for a punchline a lot. Right. And so to have a character be like, that's sucks for them. You know, people neglect them sexually or at least, or make them the joke and don't take care of them. I'll, I'll do that. That provides me pleasure. That provides me. Well, I think, I think it's reflexive of what he wants, right? Mm -hmm. Like Julian is just trying to do the job that he would want done for him. You know, so, but he's in, he's not very good at allowing it to happen Mm. for him. And like, I mean, I'm going to use the word, I'm going to use the word, that's toxic masculinity. Like, that's, that's two words. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, and I think that it's just like, like it's, it's so intrinsic about how he approaches it, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and like, and that's why it's so reflect. It's perfect metaphor. It's very caveman-y. Yeah, in that way. Very, it's, like, beat my perfect, chest. It's a very perfect metaphor for capitalism, too. You know, like, and how toxic masculinity is tied up in capitalism. And it's it's all about your value is tied up in your job. Mm-hmm. You know? And, like, you, you have no value outside of the job you can do. And he just happens, his job that he can do is provide pleasure to women. Yeah. You know, he and... knows here's the thing though. He says like and this is just his like cover of like sometimes people hire me people from 
other countries or people from out of town hire me as a guide or as a as a translator. And it's like, yeah, why don't you do that? You know? Because he knows five languages. He's got obviously got the gift of gab. Like, he can pick up on languages really, really yeah. well. So, like, why doesn't he become a – translators can make a lot of money, especially depending not, on where they work. Not, not that much money. Right, you know? but if – if he's at all concerned about like, he's good at other things. Uh, that's all I'm saying. He's not just yeah. it's, that's, him being being able to give women pleasure. Is not but his you, is not his only. You thing may not, about. you may not, be able to see that. You know, right. like, like, dude, you you learned five languages in your adulthood. That is insane. It's hard to learn yeah, one extra I, language as an adult. He learned he's learned five, and he's working on his sixth. I very much, I really relate to this character, like a lot. In what um, way? I because I have a completely service-driven mind. I've been programmed um, since a childhood that you're to give of yourself before you give, mm-hmm. you take, or you receive. You know, it's a it's like a Christian a Christian principle that I was raised with then not only that, but I started being a waiter, you know, and working in the service industry. And then you realize that service is also a commodity. Okay. So, and what that means is you do the best job you can, but sometimes you also are going to have to do things you don't want to do, you know, and especially if you want to get a good tip. You know, your, your definition of service is you try to do the best you can to provide the best service possible, but sometimes people want more than, than you expect to get. And you learn that really quick and really early. And then as time goes by, you're put into more and more scenarios, more and more tables, but it's, uh, you start to blur lines with your tables because they blur the lines. So like, you know, I used to work in um, a gay neighborhood in Chicago, uh, Boys Town, and uh, I am a straight man, but there were a lot of gay men who would come on to me at work, you know, like I've had my ass grabbed and things like that, uh, working tables. And it becomes like a situation where you're like, <clears throat> okay, how do I respond to this? I'm still their waiter. There's still a power dynamic here. There's still a money exchange. Do I get upset and risk losing money? Or do I just take it and kind of like position myself differently so that it doesn't happen again? Which is what you end up doing a lot. And uh, I've, I've had people in Nashville basically imply that they were swingers and wanted me to join them in something, you know? And so... It's not hard to, for me personally, it's not hard for me to see how I could get to a place where I could be a lot like this character. Um, and even, even in, a, in the like not knowing yourself sense, right? Like it's easier for me to just do what other people tell me as opposed to do what I want to do, 
you know, and I do, I have found value in the past of helping people or servicing them in some way. So I always lean to that, you know, mm-hmm. and you have to figure out there, there, you know, you have to have boundaries. It's when you don't have boundaries that you are, you, you risk becoming like Julian. Mm-hmm. And me and you, we, are so similar in that way and that i mean i was i've i've worked in the service industry for, for like one summer and i was a dishwasher and let me tell you that'll that'll destroy your ego of just like being yeah. like literally the lowest on the low in a restaurant um people treat you real bad real bad um yeah but um i also i don't know maybe we've talked about how maybe this is like a result of me being a middle child. And like, people always make the joke about like middle child syndrome, but like there is an element of truth in that, in that sometimes the middle child is just expected to, to be. And, and honestly, psychologically it just makes sense. Like when you're in the middle, it's easier to lean one way or the other. Right. Yeah. Whereas like, if you're on the far end of the spectrum, it's hard to like lean to the other side. So like when you're in the, in the middle, you're kind of expected to be the flexible one. Like, oh, if the older one needs something or wants something, you kind of need to also lean that way. If the baby needs something, you kind of need to lean the other way. And so, like, I think it just is, is, it's subconscious, but I think it's the reason why I think people say it's a thing, middle child syndrome, is because it it kind of is a thing. I don't think parents do it on purpose. Like, that would be really screwed up if they're, if they do it on purpose. But, like, I think it, uh, I think it's just, like I said, I think it's just a subconscious thing of, like, the middle child is in between these two and so can can flow between right and so yeah. i was a middle child and i think i was maybe not expected but like maybe early in my life was like asked to be more flexible on some things yeah. and then because i was i was asked so maybe like just one to you know a time too many that i just started being flexible without people asking me to be and then it became expected. Oh, Ricky's flexible. Ricky yeah. can Ricky Ricky can can make can deal with anything. You know, whatever we and need then, him to to just be okay with, he can he can get through. But low, that's my it. family says I'm low maintenance. And I, I, but, I that's at, but you're at risk of and which me too, you're at risk of becoming a pushover. Exactly. You know? And this is this is the struggle I've had a lot in my life where it's like now I I cater to everybody a lot of other people's needs way more often than i do myself um and and you're right like you said causes a problem sometimes people will consider me uh a pushover or easy to manipulate or you know or like sometimes like this is what happens at work where i work now sometimes it's just just get ricky to do it exactly it's just assumed that ricky will do it right oh ricky can can do that ricky can handle that and then it gets assumed and what happens is like things like for example, uh, a few months ago, um, one of my, my classes, uh, one of my classes was really, really, uh, big. It was getting so big that like, it was hard to do the class. And so my boss was like, man, this class is getting too big. It's really, it's, it's getting really hard for you to teach the class. I was like, well, and so I offered, I was like, well, why don't we open up? I'll come in a little bit. I'll come in an hour earlier on Thursdays at nine o'clock instead of 10. And we can open another one of these classes there. So that some of those people can can move to this other one so we can split them up a little bit more. So I offered to do that. 
And it was like, oh, cool. Yeah. And then, and it worked out really well. Like we, the classes were way more manageable. People had more options to go to that class. So it was great. But then maybe like two weeks later, two, three weeks later, it was just decided without talking to me about it that they were going to move another class from Wednesday to, to, to Thursday at the end of that day. So it became – I had a class at 10, 11, 12, and 1, so a four-class day. Two, yeah. I added an extra class to a five-class day. No problem. That's a very normal day. And then without even asking me if I could do it, moved another class to the end of my day. So now it's a six-class day. It went from being a wow. four-class day to a six-class day, which is a lot. If you work with babies and children, six, six straight hours of teaching a class with, for young children is a lot. Um, yeah. And like I said, my, my, my manager didn't even ask me if that was okay. She just assumed that I could do it and that I would do it. And like, so like you get in situations like that where you're like, you're right. Your boundaries get blurred or at least they get, your boundaries get redrawn constantly to bigger and bigger. Yeah. You'll let more and more stuff go by to the point where it's like almost anything can go by at this point. Um, and it is, at what point is, is it okay for you to, to say, I'm not okay with this or or this is where my boundary is. But then it's gone so far at this point where you feel bad when you do that. Right? And you think you should be compensated more for it. So like, mm -hmm. so for me, like I look back on situations and like, I don't know. I think I've saved myself a lot of heartache and, uh, I have maintained at least some moral pillars, if you will, but it, I can definitely look back and say, okay, well, if I had made different choices in certain situations, maybe I would be further ahead in my career. Maybe I would have more financial goods. Maybe, you know, like if I'm already being taken advantage of, I might as well take advantage of it, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's where it gets scary, you know, mm -hmm. like that's where, that's where you can put yourself into the situations where you can destroy your constructs of love and morality. morality. Well, that's, um, that's what, that's what's so interesting is how people don't realize this because it feels like they're, they're so opposite, but the boundary between being selfless and being selfish is so thin. And that, like you said, like you could get to the point where you're so about serving other people that you're like, you're like, oh, if I wanted to leverage the fact that everybody's uh, the people in my sphere depend on the fact that I'm this selfless, yeah, I can take advantage you know, of all of this. You know who the greatest like, assassin? The greatest yeah. assassin is the greatest servant. Mm -hmm. the, the person that can get closest to you is the person that can kill you the easiest. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so, it's like if you ever wanted to flip your flip your I'm so selfless and so giving to no service me now. It, well, not only that, you're 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 helping your own reputation by servicing others. Mm -hmm. So, like, you're building up leverage, leverage to take. So this is and and this is why I th okay we're getting to a really great place with this because like love has to be bigger than that. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, if love is real, 
it has to be bigger than this commodity because the duality of the commodity is that giving is receiving and receiving is giving at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you know, it just over time, how it plays out. So like for some people, they need to receive to give and some people need to give to receive and some people can only receive. So therefore, you know, like it, there's a, it's, there's so much going on here that it has to be bigger than this. It has to be something more powerful than this goods exchange or then it's not real, you know? Um, then it is at the end of the day, just a, a power exchange, a goods exchange. Yeah. And I hope it is. I hope it's something I don't think this movie does a great job of defining it beyond. No, it presents the question, but it doesn't get, it doesn't give its own opinion on that. It just is like, I think it, just like, I do, I do think it volleys it up there a little bit yeah. with the ending. Mm-hmm. Like there is this loss of, there is this loss of all goods. Like the, everything that they have is gone and they're starting out with just with nothing they're each both other. starting with nothing with each yeah. other but that's still compli- like where that's more still complicated is that it's a huge indebted relationship so it's either it's either jay has to decide that he can move beyond the indebted his debt like just accept the fact that he's not ever going to pay this debt yeah i get that or but I don't. I don't think that's what it implies. At, but with the end, I think he mm-hmm. bows to her. You know, like he gotcha. is for he. He is forever indebted to her, in his mind. Whereas, really, if if it's love, then he would know that there is no debt to be paid. Right, and that's the ideal. Um, I think that's a good place for us to to wrap up our conversation about American Gigolo. I do want to point out, though, Seth, that throughout our whole conversation of this movie in the What's It About segment, not once did we talk about this murder, <laughs> this murder plot. <laughs> <laughs> so it's well, obviously not that inevitably, important to the movie. The ending, you can't get to the ending without the, you can't get to the ending without the murder plot. I know, but like it's true. I, that's why I mean thematically, I don't think it really matters to the movie very much, and that's why it didn't really work for me. But like I said, beside yeah. the point. So let's talk about what's next. Um, yeah. So what's next? So we are going to be having a guest on next week. Woo-hoo! Ronnie Page, actress, performer, singer, uh, social media uh, guru, is going to be joining nice. us next week. Uh, she has not told me what the movie she has picked yet. So uh, I'm going to give her uh, – I'm going to text her again today. Uh, we're recording on Wednesday. Uh, video uh, – sorry, this episode posts on Friday. Um, and I will, in editing, add in what her choice is for everybody. Hey, everybody. This is Ricardo Blade Diaz from the editing room. I just heard back from Ronnie. And Ronnie would like to watch the 2001 Reese Witherspoon comedy Legally Blonde. If you are watching along with us at home, you can stream Legally Blonde for free on YouTube, Tubi, the Roku channel, and Pluto. You can also stream it with a subscription to Paramount Plus, Amazon Prime Video, Showtime, Hulu, Sling TV, and Fubo TV. Or you could pay to rent it with Google Play, Vudu, or Apple TV. We are very, very excited to be watching Legally Blonde with Ronnie, and we will see you all there next Friday. And we will see her again soon. Seth, go ahead and shout yourself out. Yeah, you can find me at the Birdie Word on Twitter. That's T H E B I R D Y W O R D. 
you can also, you know what? I never plugged my website, but you can go to my website, www.sethcrow.com. And you can find all there is to know about me there. Uh, also, all my social media tag handles or and everything. Um, you find my podcast at the uh, at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That's the Crowcast. That's T H E two words T H E C R O W E C A S T one word. Uh, and Seth Adam Crow on Instagram. Awesome. And I'm Ricardo Boy Diaz. You can find me at Ricardo Boy Diaz on Instagram and TikTok. That is just what my full name is easy peasy uh and you can find this show the what's it about film podcast on social media on twitter at we what you can find us on instagram at what's it about podcast you can find us on tiktok on at what's it about pod uh remember new episodes go up every friday morning at 9 a.m you can find us on spotify and apple podcasts um so please 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 if you're enjoying the show like uh like and follow if you guys think we're doing a great job let other people know by writing a review share it with people. Um, and like I said, get involved in the conversation because we would love to hear from y'all. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. Seth, thank you so much for being here. We will see you next time on the What's It About Film Podcast. See ya. Adios.